The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and soon to be Kern boom, boom, boom. <laughs> College of Law. And I got it all out of my system, Mitch. Good Saturday to you. Good Saturday to you and good Thursday to our listeners on voiceamerica.com. Absolutely. And we're broadcasting live from KSCO 1080 AM in Santa Cruz and live on KVEC 920 AM out of San Luis Obispo. And speaking of Kern County, we are going to add KERN 1180 AM and 96.1 FM to our listening audience on Sunday mornings. That's excellent. <laughs> we have We're expanded growing, our reach. Growing Demographic. Somebody out there likes us. They do. They do. No, it's great. Mitch. Sound I'm like really Cap happy. Sally Fields. I'm really happy that we've expanded <laughs> our reach, and that's a powerful station with a very, very broad reach and all across the central coast of California, uh, central valley of California. Yeah, it's great. So it's really good. Glad to have them on our listening. Excellent. In our so listening we audience. we have a new president elect, and we have a new station. How do you like that? That's true. Uh, that's true. Let's just leave it at that. All right. <laughs> but we are going to talk about election-related issues today. That's where I was going. Not necessarily about the campaigns, I wasn't you're exactly trying to right. bait you into having a dispute <laughs> over whether you're pleased with the outcome, Mitch. I promise I wasn't going there. We are going to talk about the Electoral College. That's right. There's, a, you know, Actually, I thought it would be a great time because over the next several weeks, there have been two ideas that have been bandied about immediately following the election, regardless of... of which side you were voting on. And one is this misunderstanding about how the Electoral College works. And we did a program a number of months ago with Bill Schreier, uh, who came and talked about it. But I thought we ought to walk back through the steps because although we just had an election in which there was a popular vote, there was this count all through the evening of these electoral votes uh, we haven't actually elected a president yet. That doesn't happen until December 19th. That is true. When the electors of the Electoral College cast their votes. So we are going to have an Electoral College 101 exchange a little bit today, Mitch. And I thought I'd set it up this way because I think this is a good one that will resonate. My daughter asked me, where is the Electoral College? <laughs> 
<laughs> and do you have to apply? And, I and thought, what's your SAT score need and, to be? And I said, it's a system. <laughs> it's not a place. But I mean, there is a lot of misunderstanding as to the Electoral College. How did it come about? Why do we have the system? Why does California have, do we have 55? 55, 55 right. electors. Texas I, is... Does Texas in the 30 or? It's, I forget, like but 35 or so. But how are they distributed? So. How are they distributed? Well, so there's 538 of them. And so before we get into this, should we bring Greg yes, Landis in? Yes, let's do it. Absolutely. Uh, we're pleased to have as our guest today, uh, Greg Landis. Brandis. He, Brandis, sorry, uh, Greg. Greg Brandis. Greg is a law professor and former uh, law school dean. Calling in from Colorado. Greg, are you in Colorado? how are you? I'm great. It's great to be with you. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me to uh, talk about these really interesting developments. That's true. And so there's an electoral college in Colorado, too, isn't there? <laughs> well, yes, there is. I believe there's, uh, there's nine of them, to be, to be precise. Nine electors. That's nine right. Electors. Nine yeah. electors. Nine electors. Uh, so we so Stephen just framed the question of you know where as his daughter asked where is this electoral college and and that's it's interesting that they would use the name college because it really has nothing to do with education or a location in fact the electors of the the 538 electors don't even meet in a place. I mean, a single place. They meet individually in every one of the jurisdictions, every one of the states. So in this case, the, the term college is just a, a word to use a collection of people. So it's, it's interesting you should mention. I never even thought about you know, having to describe that before, but that's exactly right. Greg, so peel back some of the layers just historically for us, would you, a little bit? Well, sure. The, the reason, of course, we had this was goes all the way back to the forming of the Constitution. It goes to the time when folks were not able to conduct national elections of the sort that we can do today. Uh, there was also a sentiment that popular voting probably would not necessarily be the best thing for the country, uh, that we needed some cooler heads to prevail. And so the original system of the Electoral College was designed to address those kinds of concerns. Uh, those those kinds of concerns probably are, at least in some of them, uh, less important today. Uh, we feel we can conduct a national election fairly reliably today on the popular vote. And so every time there's a close election, and particularly when there's one of these upsets where the popular vote goes sideways to the Electoral College, there have been calls uh, to eliminate the whole system of the Electoral College. Uh, some 700 proposals to eliminate the Electoral College over the years, more than any other proposed change to the, uh, the Constitution, uh, Electoral College changes are a very popular conversation. Uh, after any election where there's always one side, after all, uh, that turns out not to be so happy. And Greg, if you go back to the underpinnings, it sounds as if one of the reasons for the system was that uh, the popular vote and the infrastructure may not have been in place, right? I mean, polling and, and ability to, to cast votes and to tally and accurately monitor things, I think, was one of the concerns, right? That's exactly right. And remember, it took weeks, not hours or even minutes, uh, to tally the vote. Uh, in those days because they're, they're, the systems of communication just didn't exist. And so weeks and weeks would go by before the news would arrive 
from one place or another as to what the uh, what the amount was. That's why the president is sworn in in January, <laughs> not in uh, December sometime, uh, because we have to allow enough time for all this stuff to happen. So what they've done is they've divided, they came up with this idea that was a balance because on one hand, there was a push for it to be a pure democracy where the popular vote would elect the president, the president vice president of the United States. On the other hand, there were particularly the smaller states that felt like they, would, they wouldn't be heard and they would just get overwhelmed from time to time. We need to remember there were only 13 states at the time. So there was, you know, there was a real diversity of size between the larger states like New York and the smaller states at that point. And then there was this issue of slavery. You know, can't overlook the fact that that was a concern of how would we deal with the population that uh, did not have votes or was not going to have votes. And then we came up with this curious constitutional uh, angle where uh, slaves were three-fifths of a person to try to balance out what they feared was this overwhelming vote from the South. So, I mean, it's really an interesting... Uh, discussion that those founders, founding fathers, there no founding mothers at the time, we should point out, but founding fathers had to try to uh, balance this out. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember, too, that the, uh, the number of electors has not changed in quite a long time. Uh, it's really fixed to go kind of along with the, uh, the legislature, the bicameral U.S. legislature. And uh, so, actually, today, if you look at population in the different states, those same concerns would probably arise uh, with proposals to eliminate the Electoral College because uh, California would have an outsized influence. Uh, some of the other large states would dwarf uh, some of the smaller states in their influence in, in selecting the president. They already do uh, because of the, uh, the way the number of electoral votes are allocated, but that problem would become more pronounced because we haven't really kept up with uh, the actual number of people versus the number of electors in quite the same balance as we originally started. And Greg, so the number of electors is tied to the number of representatives, is that right? Plus your senators. That's, Plus that's senators. Exactly right, representatives and senators. So uh, we, the reason it's 538 is we have 535 in our two houses of Congress, and we have three from Puerto Rico and Guam and a couple of other places like that who each have one. I did read recently, I thought that was interesting, that American, and it's American Samoa, not American Samoa, as we generally say, but that I saw a special in which the uh, American Samoa, they vote in the primaries because the primaries are run by the parties, but they have no representation in the Electoral College at all, even though they're in American territory. That's interesting. I'm still reeling from the proper pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> it just Greg, now, Greg, Mitch rolls out with these nuggets all the time. He's, he's a very, very literate man, you can tell. <laughs> I learn something new every day. <laughs> so what I think is amazing is that, so here we... Here we have all the discussion, but let me just hit the dates again, because the, the reality is the presidential election is still underway, and not just waiting for the final popular vote in some of these states, but the electoral process is happening right now. So the, when we voted on election day, we weren't really voting for a president and vice president. We were voting for the electors 
in our respective states that represent those parties and both the Democrats and the Republicans and, and the other minority parties were had their own methods of picking their electors. And they're not the same. You know, they're allowed to select them their own way. So there were 55 Democratic electors selected and there were 55 Republican electors selected in California. And when the popular vote went with Clinton in California, those 55 became a winner-take-all for that day. So we really just voted on electors, not on the candidates. And those electors will vote on December 19th. They meet in their state, they cast their ballots, and those votes are forwarded December 28th to the President of the Senate and the Archivist of the United States. On January 6th, Congress meets in joint session to officially count the electoral votes. And then on January 20th, we have Inauguration Day. So we're still right smack in the middle of the formal process of electing electors who will then represent who's going to be inaugurated That's as right. president so, and vice president. So, Greg, what Mitch was just recounting and working through is the, the certification process that's required, right? That's right. Exactly. And... So once we decide as a state uh, which uh, popular vote, we're, uh, where we're going to cast our popular vote, then our electors go and represent us and vote the way we voted, or at least they're supposed to. And there's some interesting questions there about whether they always do, uh, whether they have to. Uh, we should probably get into some of that. Yeah, I, I, we definitely want to go there, and maybe we should tease it before we go out on the first break. We're on a new clock, so I think we have a couple more minutes. But the the I, I think we do want to stir that pot a little bit, Greg, and talk about just sort of, I mean... Faithless electors. Can't, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what electors. It's, Faithless electors. And, and I mean, is there is there a history of the electors uh, going south or coming uh, coming up with aberrant sort of results? Well, the, the reality is, there, you want me to answer it before the break? Sure. <laughs> the, the reality is, no, generally not. Uh, no one, as to my knowledge, no one has ever been prosecuted for uh, violating state law uh, for casting a vote differently than state law specified. And it is a matter of state law that specifies that the electors will vote along the way that the popular vote was decided. Now, not every state has exactly that system, but that's the predominant rule across the vast, vast majority of the states. I think all but a two states. states. That's right. Yeah. A couple of states actually apportion their electoral college votes according to the uh, popular vote in different parts of the state. I think it's Nebraska and Tennessee or somewhere like that. Um, the other one. And uh, so that's interesting that they, they actually can end up voting uh, differently depending on where they are within the region and the state. So to circle back around to that idea that, well, if we don't like that system, and and I meant to mention before, the, the disagreement with the Electoral College has not aligned as a Democratic or Republican issue. Uh, there, there have been uh, major initiatives by both parties at one time or another to do away with or to modify the Electoral College. So the simple answer is, can that be done away with? Has it run its course? 
And the legal answer is absolutely. It could be changed. It merely takes a constitutional an act, amendment. An act of Congress. An act of Congress. That's a right. literal <laughs> act of Congress. Yeah, okay. So let, let's expand on that when we come back. We're going out on a break. Greg, please stay with us. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America. We're broadcasting live from KSCO Studios in Santa Cruz. Our guest is law professor Greg Brandis. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Well, 
Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, our topic today is the electoral college system. And our guest is law professor and former dean, Greg Brandis. And Greg, uh, this is not the first time that the popular vote has not mimicked or mirrored the electoral college vote. Let's talk a little bit about just historically the fact that this has happened before. And I think most recently it would be Bush-Gore, right? It would, and, uh, you know, the Bush-Gore, of course, goes down as probably the most notorious example uh, of the Electoral College being uh, different than the uh, popular vote. Popular vote ended up uh, 540,000 votes in favor of Al Gore over George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, I should say, to be sure we're clear. Uh, But Bush won the Electoral College with 271 votes uh, to 266. Now... That's a squeaker by anybody's um, uh, estimation, but it's not the closest election in U.S. Uh, in the 20th century. Uh, any guesses as to which one was the actual closest popular vote election in the? I know 20th we're going to be rolling back the clock. Um, we are. Is is it going to be? It's going to be in the 1800s, right? Well, let, let's do the closest one in the 20th century, one that many of our listeners may remember. Wait a minute. I'm going to do a drum roll. (laughs) (laughs) The prize goes to Kennedy Nixon in 1960. Oh, wow. Where the popular popular vote was only 118,574 votes apart. Kennedy over Nixon, 1960. Now, in that case, the Electoral College went lopsidedly in favor of Kennedy. Even though the popular vote was a squeaker. But the popular vote was a squeaker. That's right. So it wasn't one of these lopsided ones. Kennedy had 330 uh, electoral votes to only 219 for Nixon. So it wasn't lopsided, but it was an example where you could have had another one of these situations uh, that occurred alongside the Bush-Gore, which really stands out, of course, in most folks' mind. And now this one, (laughs) which will also stand out in folks' minds. This one was decided by a margin of... 574,000 votes, once again, Clinton over Trump in the popular vote, uh, but Trump won the Electoral College decidedly, 290 to 233, or pardon me, to 228. Yeah. And so and this would be the fifth, the fifth time that this has happened, because it started back in 1824. Uh, that election was also the flip side, where the electoral votes went one way, popular vote went another. 1876, Rutherford Rutherford B. Hayes won, same thing, flip side, and 1888, Benjamin Harrison. So, I mean, it's the fifth time in a, a relatively young country. That's actually quite a few times to have the popular vote go one way and the Electoral College go a different way, which I think is good reason why we're talking about the possibility of changing it. And so it would. we said that it would take a constitutional amendment. But, you know, there's a couple of other things we could talk about. One is that the states could change how they allocate their winner-take-all process, and they could mirror more of the popular vote, couldn't they? They sure could. Uh, you know, in other words, um, they could decide to allocate uh, based on uh, counties or electoral districts within the state uh, to allocate their uh, voter their um, electoral votes in accord with those. And it doesn't have to be a winner-take-all system in any state, and that's a state law matter. 
it isn't a uh, it isn't governed by the by the Constitution at all. So. Individual states could make that change right now. Yeah, so I think that as we have this conversation about whether the Electoral College has run its course and is no longer reflecting the will of the republic, uh, my guess is that that's where the conversation is most likely to happen on a a state-by-state basis where we start looking to see whether we want the states to reapportion their allocation of the Electoral College. So, So when we started about it, you know, what is the likelihood of changing the system, I I think there's a a very low likelihood of changing, uh, of moving away from the Electoral College and into a popular vote. But I do think there's a chance there'll be some very serious conversations on the state level of where they want to change how they allocate their Electoral College votes. Short, short of succession. Short of succession. So succeeding from the union, which is on our topic list, Greg, I should warn you. We're getting some kind of weird feedback. Greg, are you on a uh, landline? I am, yeah. Are you? Okay. I don't know why we're getting, yeah, apologize to our listeners. We're getting some little back, at least we're hearing some back feed and popping, but we'll kind of work our way through it here. So the other thing I thought we would talk about, make it interesting, and, you know, Greg, you're calling in from Colorado, so this is not quite as pertinent to you, but it will not surprise you, having spent as much time as you have in California, that there has been a resurgence of discussion about whether California, who, who overwhelmingly voted for Clinton in the presidential campaign, should then say, well, why don't we just succeed from the union? So I thought we should talk about, is that actually possible? Is that legally possible? And Greg, sorry to pile on, but there is one issue that's, some might say, inextricably tied to that, and that is the potential of the Golden State being split into two, a Northern California and a Southern California. Yeah, so, so the question is, can, can a state succeed from the union? The simple answer, I think, is going to surprise people. The answer is yes. It is conceivable. And, you know, Stephen and I, you and I have talked to how many times that Texas cases seem to have been the pivotal cases in this U.S. Supreme Court on so many issues we've talked about. Believe it or not, this is another one. It goes back to 1869 in a case of Texas v. White, which to this day is the Supreme Court's uh, determination of whether or not a state could unilaterally depart from the union. And the, and the Supreme Court said, sim- simply put, absolutely not, uh, that they can't. But you could go through the process and... and and have, uh, which would require a two-thirds vote of Congress to allow a state, a state con- congressional delegation could ask for their state to be released from the union. You need a two-thirds vote in Congress, or you need to convene a convention in which represents all 50 states and have a two-thirds agreement of the delegates to a convention to then vote for succeeding. So, and what do you think about that? And that's sorry, Greg. And at the same time, <laughs> hope for uh, no civil war to break out. <laughs> well, I was going to say, if you're going to divide California, I think you should just go ahead and use the San Andreas fault line. <laughs> then that way, if anything bad happens, it'll already be you know it'll already be set to go. So you won't you won't have to worry about it. Uh, rather than northern southern. So I thought it was kind of interesting, as I you know as you know I tied out look for statistics on things like this that that almost a quarter of 
the Americans believe that if a state really wanted to succeed and had a legitimate reason, that they ought to be allowed to do so. I mean, do you guys find that surprising? A quarter of Americans believe that strongly in states' rights, that they think that a state can have the right. And, and we're talking about California, but by, California is not the only state that has proposed over the past 200 years to succeed. That's true. That, that is an alarming number, actually. <laughs> It's an alarming number, but you know nothing surprises me anymore. Uh, after this, after this most recent election, I'm just not surprised anymore. So, so, so Greg, you, the the concept of uh, one person, one vote, is that in harmony with the electoral college? Well, that's the challenge. You know, if if we were really divvying them up, uh, let me just do a comparison for you. Um, Colorado has nine electoral college votes. It has about 5.3 million people. That's about 609,000 people per elector, elector uh, for the state of uh, Colorado. California has 38.8 million people and only 55 electors. Now, some of our listeners are quicker at math probably even than I am, but I think that works out to something a lot more than 609,000 people per elector. And uh, so it goes to this question of... Proposals to eliminate the Electoral College ending up with the smaller states uh, being very concerned about the impact a bigger state would therefore have uh, a much outsized influence compared to the way the electoral system works today. Others, of course, would say, well, that's exactly how it should be. Uh, whereas uh, this, this compromise, this kind of structure that was put into place, is intended to diminish the impact of the sort of fluctuations of population. And Greg, uh, the other question that I had, and it's really one where I'm being kind of the liaison here because it's a question that I think, again, my daughter had, and that was, uh, why is it that Ohio, all the action is on Ohio and Florida and North Carolina? And I don't expect, expect you to have an exact answer for that, but the, the notion that the... Uh, Republican candidate must take Ohio, that kind of thing, doesn't, doesn't compute with everybody. Why is that? Well, the main reason for... Uh, there's, two, there's two levels of, of uh, consideration of this question. At one level, uh, this is the, the sort of Eastern-centric uh, 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 political coverage view of the election. In other words... Uh, coverage of the election begins when the polls close on the East Coast. And so it rolls across the country with all the attention paid in the early hours of the evening anyway, on the states in the East. And, you know, by the time, they don't call California till the polls close, but by the time the polls close in California, in most instances, there's already a very strong sense of where this is going to go. So one answer to this is simply the way it's covered in the media and the way we attend to it. Those big eastern states with a lot of electoral votes, uh, because they have a large population and big representation in Congress, have an outsized influence on the Electoral College. So they get talked about a great deal. The other thing about Ohio, uh, for example, and Michigan, for example, these are, these are very mixed states. In other words, their population represents a microcosm of the United States reasonably well terms of the balance of, uh, you know, so liberal, liberal and democratic and uh, conservative and Republican and so on uh, because of the nature of those states. And so they are considered bellwethers in a large, to a large extent. Florida is a little bit more of a special uh, case these days 
uh, because of the way Florida has itself been evolving over the last several years. But even in Florida, as you can see, Florida ends up being quite a battleground in a lot of our elections. It comes in very close over and over and over again. So that's why these get a great deal of attention. And the person who wins them, whoever that might be, uh, then has a big leg up when it comes to the, the uh, getting to that tally of 270, sometimes, you know, close to it before the polls even close in California. And then, Greg, a related question, and this one doesn't come from my daughter, it's, <laughs> it's actually from me, is why Iowa as, as the nerve center right away? What is it about well, that? Iowa gets a lot of attention because it is the first presidential uh, battleground. Uh, it's uh, the caucus uh, system, just for everybody's sake. Uh, that is where the po folks who are members of the party get together and decide who they're going to support. It's not a primary of the kind that we see where we have a vote and everybody goes to the polls, uh, and nor is it a closed primary. A closed primary system is where only declared members of a party may vote, but again, it's a voting system. A caucusing system, we get everybody together and we decide who we're going to do. And it therefore allows the candidates a great deal of access to the electorate. Because the system requires these meetings, people coming together, candidates can get themselves there and get their people there to have very direct access. Yeah, I think that's so, a good point, Greg. I've, always, I've looked at it almost like an opportunity for the candidates to sort of get their chops. They get out, <laughs> they go to diners, you know, and they do things that are really a little non-traditional. So before we move on this, I want to throw one other thing. We've got just enough time to talk about it. Why not have Election Day be a national holiday? You know, one of the things we don't talk about a lot is about a third of the eligible voters do not vote. So we have all of this going on about only two-thirds of the people expressing an opinion. Why not have it be a, a national holiday? It is in many, many countries. What do you guys think about that? Well, I'll opine that I, I think that's a great idea, but it's not necessary. Uh, in other words, it would probably be sufficient to bring some more people out to the polls. It would probably be successful. Um, however, there are now, today, a lot of mechanisms for early voting, uh, I happen to speak from Colorado, which has one of the best early voting statutes in the country. Millions of votes are cast ahead of Election Day in Colorado because of the way they've structured it. We have ballot boxes that you can drive through right by the downtown uh, uh, sort of city hall. Uh, you fill out your ballot that came to you in the mail, and you drive by and drop it in a box just like you pay your utility bill or whatever you want to do. There, there are a lot of ways in which we can engage and involve the electorate ahead of time so that the um, you know the necessity of getting out to the polls standing in a long line waiting a long time to be able to vote can be diminished and uh, there's still reliable ways of, of gathering the popular vote um, you know voting begins here in Colorado a couple of couple about six weeks Craig we're going we're going out on a break when we come back we'll pick up with that topic you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America we're talking about the electoral college system and our guest is law professor and former law school dean Greg Brandis we'll be right back after this short break Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. 
established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about the Electoral College, and our guest today is law professor and former law school dean, Greg Brandis. Uh, Greg, before we uh, went out on a break, I think uh, Mitch had introduced the idea of making uh, Election Day a national holiday, and Mitch's theory was that that would bring a spike to uh, more votes or create more votes. I, I think it may. I think Mitch is... is but Greg's point's a good one, too, that, that we have dramatically changed the ab, what we call absentee ballot or early voting. We have. But uh, let's let's just go there for just a minute before we leave this, this topic. Uh, there have been rumblings of interest in curtailing that early voting dramatically, uh, particularly in this last election where there were so many things that happened very late in the last weeks of the election and, and they felt like it cheated people out of having the opportunity to change their vote. 
Uh, I was fascinated that, that one of the states, I, I mean, I was shocked. I don't even know how they do it. One of the states allows you to change your early ballot up to three times before election day. I mean, that just boggled my mind. I can't even imagine how would they track that. But but setting that aside, what do you guys think about the the standardization or the curtailing of early voting? Uh, Greg, I'll go first really quick and just say this, uh, that I think uh, voting by mail this last time around um, may have may have uh, created a new level of intrigue because of a lot of the last minute activities and events that were taking place. I, I can't help but think that a lot of people that did do mail-in ballots kind of wish they didn't push send, if you know what I mean. Well, that's right. And it certainly is uh, one of those questions uh, that we have to face every single time. How much of that stuff that happens at the last minute is stuff that should change your opinion, and how much of it isn't? Uh, we know that the opposition research departments of each of the two parties uh, have things in their pocket that they're waiting to spring at just the right moment to try to cause trouble for the uh, the opposite side. And, of course, that, that happened in a number of instances here on both sides of the campaign. Uh, the question really should be, uh, we think, probably about issues. Uh, certainly character is an issue, and certainly other behaviors are, are uh, issues in elections. But the real question is, after campaigning for, well, what, a year, a year and, and a half, half. We, were, we were paying attention <laughs> to these people? Right, yeah, <laughs> is, no, that's a good point. Is there really something that should change our vote at the last minute, uh, or should we recognize that we're, we're making a decision on broader issues, uh, certainly on platform planks and that sort of stuff? Um, perhaps we should be focused on those things as much as we are on anything else that might come out yeah, at the last minute. You know, Greg, I can't help but make a trial attorney analogy, and that would be I don't want the verdict form being circulated until I've made my closing argument. Exactly. You That's know. right, and, and understandably, the candidates would feel exactly the same way. And the other thing I thought changed a little, and we'll see how much, was that I was always of the belief that if, if we could figure out how to dispense cash out of a, of a mechanized process sticking on the side of the wall in the mall, we could figure out how to cast a vote securely electronically so that we could add that dimension. And I just assumed, I have to say, I just assumed that that's the direction we were going and it was just a matter of time till we were there. But I don't know what you guys think, but I, I think that the prospects of that was set back dramatically this time with all the allegations of, of hacking that went on. Well, there was. And there, of course, there, we, we still don't know what might be revealed about hacking that actually occurred of, of those systems that were electronic, uh, that were deployed uh, in this election, there could still be revelations uh, that affect the outcome of this, of this election. Um, there was certainly a lot of speculation that uh, Russians particularly would be involved in it um, because of the, you know, the paranoia about the connection to Trump, uh, between Putin and Trump. And uh, so it will be very interesting to see if anything comes of that in the, in the recent past. We certainly can, Mitch. We can do it. Um, the question is whether or not we can do it in such a, to such a degree of security that everybody feels the kind of confidence that they feel in, in filling out pieces of paper. Yeah, and I, think, uh, I, mean, I do think your, your point is right. Now, I would have argued that we were moving to that confidence level with some rapidity, but, but not, not now. 
I, I think not now. I think it's been set back. And I actually wasn't thinking as much of the hacking of the voting booths, the voting process, as just this allegation of hacking and the, the inherent insecurity of, of uh, online systems. <clears throat> that, that, that had to give rise to that. So, Greg, you know, uh, we want to take a little bit of a detour. We can't possibly let you go without talking about marijuana. Uh, <laughs> Prop 64 passed, as you know. It was yeah. relatively quite, close, relatively close. Yeah, 50, yeah. <clears throat> 50, about 56% it passed in California. So that was one of those props that only required, you know, more than 50% to approve. So Stephen's right. It wasn't, you know, the 70 or 80% pass that some people predicted, but 56 still pretty sound victory. So what do we have to look forward to? You're a lawyer in Colorado. You've watched the recreational use be integrated into the both the economy and society there in Colorado. What, what, do you, what should we keep our eye out for? What should we be watching for? Well, you should be looking for uh, the incremental steps that those same uh, advocates will uh, begin to bring as soon as they've uh, put on the ground a system of recreational use. Uh, you'll be looking for uh, dispensaries on every corner uh, because you will, you will experience that. Um, many, many of the businesses that presently dispense medical marijuana will move into the recreational uh, arena. And many, many folks who, uh, you know, run little tobacconist kind of shops, that sort of thing, uh, will move into the recreational space as well. And so you'll, you'll, you'll see a proliferation. Uh, that brings with it all the kinds of things that go along with um, um, those kinds of businesses. And so you, you do have more crime, for example, around liquor stores than you do around, you know, clothing stores. Uh, well, you have more crime around dispensaries than you have around tobacconists. And so you, you have that kind of stuff that starts to occur. Uh, you have very interesting um, uh, balancing uh, economic impacts uh, from this. Uh, we, I think uh, folks in Colorado have benefited from a lot of in-migration into the state. Uh, from folks who live in states where uh, marijuana use for recreation is still uh, a criminal offense. Um, so uh, you can expect that California will probably encounter or experience the same kind of in-migration uh, just because now it's possible uh, to live there and, and use it in a decriminalized fashion. Uh, that's great for the economy. Um, it causes uh, home prices to go even higher. Uh, for example, uh, it brings in a lot of folks uh, who are uh, looking for jobs and looking for housing. And so uh, I would look uh, primarily at the economic impacts. Uh, I must say, I don't think the legal impacts here have yet emerged uh, or gone far enough into, for example, appellate courts for us to see patterns in them that are probably worth talking about just yet. Uh, but the economic impacts happen pretty fast. And I would think that that also bridges into the regulatory systems that we don't think about because there's going to need to be, you know, testing labs and labeling and, and a, a whole host of, of back office, essentially back office regulatory processes that are going to spin off uh, types of mom and pop businesses that we didn't even think of before. Well, that's right, and tax revenues. I mean, let's not forget that uh, one of the main reasons why states want to do this is the opportunity to tax the usage of this on a recreational basis. And uh, so hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in California can be derived from the taxes on this activity. 
you know, Stephen, I don't remember the details of the of the prop, and maybe it wasn't even in there. But but I know for, on the medical marijuana side, it was really a local option rule, so that counties or cities could opt in or opt out. And I, I you know, I just don't remember uh, under the recreation whether that's going to be the same process by which we voted to allow it, but. You know, a city could say, but no dispensaries in our city, or a county could say, no dispensaries in our county. Yeah, I'm not sure and, about and the, maybe the impact still... on the ordinances or the ability to yeah. actually open a new enterprise or business. I, I do have, you know, and Greg, I'll share this one with you. Uh, as a prosecutor, obviously, one of my concerns is will this lead to spikes in impaired driving cases? In other words, uh, might it lead to people driving under the influence of marijuana, which is frankly a challenging type of case to prosecute very often, much more challenging than impairment cases involving alcohol. So um, I am um, optimistic or cautiously optimistic that this will come with great responsibility, of course, but I'm not quite sure it will. <laughs> well... You're, uh, if you have a degree of natural cynicism, you are appropriately applying it here. <laughs> uh, certainly, the, um, you know, the folks were driving impaired by those substances before. Uh, they will again. Uh, to the degree that casual users will now use that substance uh, more than they would have. And, and remember, it's got to be folks who weren't doing it before and who weren't using something else that impaired them before. Uh, there will be a spike, and there has been a spike. Um, but it hasn't been as pronounced as you might expect, and I think it's because people were using it anyway uh, and driving under the influence of it anyway before. Um, it is a little harder, as you say, to prosecute those cases, uh, getting the getting the data. Let me throw one last thing out here that I, I think we overlook, which is uh, particularly with a Republican administration coming in, the odds of the federal law changing, where that is still a Schedule One narcotic, are, are, are is almost gone to zero. I would assume. So now we we're going to continue to have this bifurcated, unusual system where something might be legal in the state and still absolutely illegal under federal law. Well, that's right. And, and again, the the possibility of a policy change in the Justice Department with respect to prosecuting and enforcing the federal law, uh, probably became a bit more likely. Yeah, so I think it may get more confusing than more clear in the short term. And we're, this, so this is a, and in fact, Stephen, we're going to have to do this. Yeah, we will. I'm sure we're going to have to do a show just on this once we start to see what the California laws are. I had mentioned after a trip to Oregon that I was quite surprised that the, the state chartered banks and savings and loans in Oregon, where it is also legal recreational marijuana, ha allow those businesses chartered under state law to have bank accounts and to process their funds and have payroll accounts and to process their tax payments. And so, you know, all of that became possible when when the became legal in the state, even though it's still illegal for a federally chartered one to do it. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Well, we've talked about a lot of issues that are post-election. Post it won't be the first, won't be the last on these topics. Uh, as always, you've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. You can catch a rebound of this show on voiceamerica.com or wagnerandwinnick.com. Until next week, as we always remind you, if you don't know the law, 
know a lawyer. finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's shepherdmullen.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 